now the podcast starts. Hello, faithful listener. Welcome to another episode of the podcast on which we talk about horror. Sometimes we talk about other things and sometimes we swear. My marvellous co-host today is Ian Winterton. Say hello, Ian. Hello, Ian. Thank you for not disappointing me by always making that joke. That's fantastic. Uh, my my name that I'm known by is T.D. Velasquez, which means like Vasquez from the movie Aliens, I am a fake Hispanic and you can call me Dan. And today we have a very special guest because we're going to be talking about the movie Martin, uh, George A. Romero's unusual vampire film from 1977. And our guest to speak about it is film critic David Edwards, whose suggestion it was to discuss the movie on the show. Hello, David. Welcome to the show. Hi. Uh, thanks for having me on. Thank you. Thank you very much for being here, and thank you for suggesting this movie. Now, uh, we were originally going to call this a missed classic, this film, because we have a strand on the podcast for, for David and for new listeners. We have a strand where we investigate movies we've never seen before. But unfortunately, our co-hosts, Dr. Stella Gaynor and Kirsty Warrow, were going to be here, but both can't. They've not seen it before. So Ian's here, who hasn't seen the film until now and is just discovering it. Unfortunately, I have seen the film before, and, and David, obviously, you've seen the film before. So Ian, you're outnumbered. So this is not so much a missed classic as, as a revisitation. It's an ed educating Ian. But uh, do you know what's weird as well? Because me and, as the listeners won't know, but me and Dave went to uni together. We've known each other since 1991. Yeah. Yeah. And um, uh, so we have known each other for a long time. And I've been in the room with it, David playing Martin probably several times over the years. But usually when we've come in from the pub. Oh, right. So I've then fallen asleep with my head back on the sofa. Yeah. So it was weird. It's weird. So this is the first time I've ever watched it properly. Right. Okay. Uh, and all the way through and sober. I would, I would just interject here that Martin is not really your ultimate post-pub movie. No, no it isn't really. It's not is been it? designed for that at all, has it? It's not Mad Max. We always misjudge quite how sleepy I'm going to be. It's not oh, Mad yeah. Max 2. Well, it, it kind of lends weight to, I was just explaining to uh, to David when we were chatting earlier, that when I uh, was a teenager, I saw this film as a, as a film fan and a hopeful filmmaker growing up. And then I went to university to study film and discovered that none of my friends and fellow students had seen it. And, and many of them had, had not heard of it. So um, this is probably the first conversation about this movie I've ever had. And uh, it's a delightful thing because I've I've, I've rewatched it and found even more in it than uh, I remembered. So what we'll do is we'll we'll discuss the film uh, in in a way that's friendly for listeners who may not have seen it, spoiler free for the first few minutes, and then I will give a warning and we'll go into depth about just everything we want to discuss about the experience of seeing the film. Now, um, let's have a listen to the trailer of the movie before we discuss it more, because it's um, a rather audio-friendly trailer, as I think the listener will understand. My name is Martin. I'm 84 years old. People think I'm crazy when I tell them how old I am. I'd like to be normal. I just have a sickness. The only way I can survive is by drinking blood. 
not easy living the way I do. I have to be careful all the time. But I'm pretty good at it. I think as I get older, I get better. I haven't been caught yet. Martin, another kind of terror. understand what's wrong they think that i'm a monster they think i'm a vampire people don't realize that those things i see in the movies are not real i don't have a whole lot of women it's nice to watch them I watch them a lot, all the time. I have to, to be sure that nothing goes wrong. I follow them, I plan, I'm very careful. I have needles now, I can use them. I can put them to sleep, and it doesn't hurt. Martin, another kind of terror like to be like everyone else i have to do things that i don't necessarily like to do but i want to stay alive i do need blood from the director of night of the living dead So, dear listener, that was the trailer, the original theatrical trailer from 1977's Martin, um, a very unusual vampire movie directed by George A. Romero in the decade between his um, genre-shaking masterpiece, Night of the Living Dead, before its famous sequel, Dawn of the Dead. Um, So we've got uh, three people here who've all seen the film recently, even if one of them uh bless your heart ian it's the first time you've seen the film all the way through um so we're going to talk about it in a in a an accessible way for listeners who may have not seen the film for a little while and then i'll, I'll give a warning and we'll go into more detail so do you mind if I, I start with you david because you're obviously steeped in this movie um, if you had to explain Martin to somebody who was completely unaware of it, um, and in a way that you know you would sell it to them, how would you describe the movie? Um, I would describe it as um, an oddity. Um, it's a, <laughs> a film that you know almost nobody has seen unless they're particular fans of this subgenre of grindhouse midnight cult movie um and it's a film that you know was made for i think a hundred thousand dollars and which should have been you know a cheap um uh, unseen movie but which has so much going on in it has so much original thought has so much um a technical proficiency which you wouldn't expect in this sort of movie that um that it's um it stands alone i think in in this uh, 
strange area of exploitation movies as a kind of a, a piece of art, a piece of subversive art, but a piece of art nonetheless. And it's also one of those rare films from that era that actually uh, gives you back uh, more and more the more you watch it. Yes, I'd agree with that. I, I definitely feel that way, having seen it again. Um, so the movie focuses, as the title suggests, on Martin, who um, I remembered from my earlier viewing of it that he's a person who believes he's a vampire, but is he really? Um, I think it's it's very interesting that the, the way that the film uh, plays with the audience's expectations and reactions to him um, because he's not a, a conventional cinematic vampire or, or, or the vampire that, that we know from literature but that doesn't mean he's not a real vampire in the world of the film um, and as the trailer suggests you know he's he's very much aware of the kind of stereotype of the fictional vampire and that he's different from it um, so there are, are layers of, of expectation being played with throughout. And the way I remembered it, you know, as a horror fan was, I don't really remember it as a horror film. It felt like a character study. And of course, yeah, absolutely. It, it, uh, and it's clearly intended to be that because the movie is called Martin. It's not a very exciting title in the exploitation genre. You know, mm. and it's interesting how the the promotion of the film tries to sell it as um, an, an exciting horror film. I think the tagline is something like a new kind of terror that they use that kind of tagline. But well, then the posters are very much razors and fangs, aren't they? Yeah, <laughs> and, and sometimes mm. the two combined. Yeah, but the title itself is so prosaic, Martin, you know, and I'm amazed. It's appropriate, but I'm just amazed that um, nobody at any point stopped Romero and said, it's great, but you've got to change the title. We can't sell that movie. Well, yeah, that's um, a good point, yeah. But it's called, is, is it called Vampire All Over Europe, wasn't it? Well, that's, well, uh, yeah, I just read that, actually. Um, uh, but the title in the UK was always Martin, was it? Yeah, it, it was. And it's, I don't know if it's a happy accident or anything else, but you know, the way the, the, the word Martin sounds very much like the word martyr. And, um, uh, yeah. you know, Martin is kind of a, a martyr in a deeper level, which perhaps we'll come on to. Um, you know, he's this. Um, it might technically be a spoiler. <laughs> no, 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 I'm not spoiling anything. No, no. You know, I'm just, I, I just think it's, it's interesting that, um, you know, Martin as this, either this 17 year old boy or this 84 year old vampire is a product of his environment. Mm -hmm. And um, I was reading today, I've got the novelization of Martin and it's got an afterword by George Romero. And it says, I've, I've written it out here, it says, you have been created by man to be punished by man. Your destiny is to be destroyed so that man may be purged. And I just think that's a very interesting central point of the film, that Martin is a product of his environment. He meets his uh, 
fate, uh, whatever that may be, spoiler alert, spoiler, spoiler free quote um, <laughs> at the end uh -huh. of the film. But, um, um, you know, he isn't um, um, a monster in himself. He is a monster that has been created by his environment, um, mm. you know, with the which has a, a need to purge its sins and create this uh, kind of um, Judas goat and drive it out into the wilderness and make everyone feel better. And I think that's a theme in the film, which mm. going back to what I was saying earlier, and I hope I'm not sounding pretentious, but you know, that's a theme in the film that you do not get in low budget seventies grindhouse movies it just doesn't occur yeah. no no it's weird it reminded me of taxi driver in that regard in that it's about a grimy yeah. no hoper who's a monster created by his society right um, which was a similar also made in the shot in the same year as martin but also yeah. martin martin does come from the uh does come from the name martinus which is from the roman god of war which is the red planet um right so, okay, so he was right. probably who knows if he was going, it's like Marta and it's the red planet. That'll do for a yeah, vampire's yeah. name. <laughs> a yeah. vampire. But it, it seems okay, to work yeah. as well because it's, it's uh, like you say, it's not a flashy, here's, a, you know, it's not a horror film. There's no last girl or anything. There's no like, there's no, it's not even Halloween or a big slasher movie, is it? It's very much about this guy called Martin who. A, ca a character study. Yeah, yeah, character study of who's a serial killer slash actual vampire. Yeah, and, and, and I think, <laughs> to your point, David, I think that he's very much kind of a victim throughout the movie, you know, a victim of his circumstances and his condition. Yeah, he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a Frankensteinian monster created uh -huh. by, uh, you know, this Victor Frankenstein of American... Um, um, decline and yeah. superstition of course an old world superstition which is in a weird way that is america america is so about old world superstition it's where mm. old world superstition went to uh become president <laughs> so you know it's it's europe doesn't do that in the same sort of way anymore and america really does it kind of you know the religious nutters went yeah. over there everyone believes in angels yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah i think we can talk about that slightly more explicitly in uh non-spoiler because it, it is set up it's the very beginning of the movie isn't it that, that martin lives with uh his is it his his cousin his cousin allegedly yeah yeah um, yeah uh, played by leonard mazel who's like a fundamentalist christian um i'm not sure exactly what kind of christian catholic, isn't he the character oh, oh well, they do yeah. go to a catholic church they, don't get, they? they get the so, priests and they even yeah. talk about the exorcist don't they? yes yeah I, getting, I, getting it all wrong <laughs> which is a bit cheeky for a low budget horror movie to go hey you know that really 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 classic horror movie that won an oscar i'm going to slag it off the character no, says he, it's he, great. He says, he says, I think it's great. Yeah. And, and the priest, interestingly, is played by Ramiro himself. It's a great yeah. director's cameo. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, if anything, it, moment. it's kind of uh, slagging off the priest because it suggests that he doesn't know his own faith as well as other 
priest because mm-hmm. he says they yeah. said they got it all wrong whereas i thought it was great yeah good point yeah and yeah. that and that you know just um just to touch on that point that you know we i keep talking about how martin has all these different themes going on it's very interesting that you know the priest in the film doesn't seem to believe in god as you say dan mm. they he talks about they mm. and you know that is one of the most interesting things about the film the idea that there is no god you know martin we see you know kissing a crucifix chewing garlic we see him his reflection in a mirror within the first half hour of the film and we've always been used to vampire films where you know god prevails and you know the vampire has a stake through his heart and is put at peace the the thing that i find profoundly um depressing about the film but so interesting is the idea that there is no god that everyone is just walking around in some you know meaningless play and that martin you know has no salvation um come the end of the movie mm. yeah also that that makes me think that mentioning the exorcist as well which one of the things about the exorcist is it it is a it's created by a very you know very blatty was he made it to be a religious yeah, yeah. religious movie so in a way this is the opposite of the exorcist in that this is an atheist movie yeah it's a, it's exactly. a nihilistic atheistic movie compared to the exorcist which is you know which is ultimately hugely religious. The devil gets defeated by God. Um, yeah. And you definitely, the world of the exorcist, God exists because the devil exists. In this one, he's just a bit of a drippy 17-year-old boy who's a victim of a superstitious culture. And that's a lot more disturbing and a lot more... I, I, I mean, I, I, wanted a, I wanted a good shower after this movie, and, again, and I mean that in a good way, in that it just feels horrible. It's a grimy movie. It's a grimy, yeah. depressing movie. Um, but, yeah, but, 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 you know, but I, like, Ian, I still like it. But, um, it it's, it's depressing. I, I totally get that. It's very mm-hmm. maudlin, and it's very, you know, more than maudlin depressing, I'd say it was a very sad movie. Yeah, but yeah. it's also, you know, if you take, you know, at least a couple of steps back, it's actually quite a funny movie. You know, there's a lot of mm. humour that's running through it. You know, um, Tatakuda, you know, the religious cousin, um, and Martin, they engage in this sort of war of wills. You know, um, Tatakuda puts bells up on Martin's uh, bedroom door so everyone knows if he's coming into the house. And Martin, Because you know, I think we should say, for well, for people who've not seen the movie yet, mm-hmm. because it's clear from the start that, that Tatakuda is aware of the fact that Martin is what he calls a Nosferatu, and, and yeah. Yeah. he kind of sees it as his fundamentalist job to to use the traditional methods. Well, he's a, he's a comedic... He's a, he's a grotesque comedic character, is Kuda. Yeah. If he's Nosferatu, Nosferatu. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah. so there's, there's definitely that. I mean, in a way, another movie from the era it brought, brought to mind, which is nothing to do with this genre, but he's Harold and Maud. It's that right. sad, sad nihilistic <laughs> kind of. Yeah, very much people, so. People but, knocking around in reality before they die. Um, but, <laughs> well, yeah, sorry, <laughs> sorry, David. Well, uh, I interrupted there. Where were you going with that? Sorry. Um, 
Um, I was, <clears throat> well, talking about the humour. Okay, so you've got Martin and Tatakuda on this sort of, um, you know, uh, game of one-upmanship. And as I say, I mean, you really need to step back because it is, you know, the sadness of the movie, you know, so overwhelming. But when you do step back, it's almost a kind of like Laurel and Hardy, two characters, you know, one of whom is, you know, hits one over their head with a spade and then you've got the other character who, you know, jabs him in the eyeball. And, you know, yeah. there's that kind of like free song between them, which is very funny. <laughs> the other the other the other thing Why if you, you know, kill somebody from this neighborhood, I'm gonna but, uh, well, <laughs> and just the fact that he's like you you're a vampire and, and I will destroy you but also save your soul. But also come yeah. and work in my butcher's shop. Yeah. yeah. You know and here's another fine mess you've got us into. Yeah. <laughs> but but you know, there is that. And then there's the other scene. I mean, the key scene in the film, which I, I hope we talk about, is the home invasion scene yeah. where Martin yeah. breaks into the house. And, you know, that's the pivotal scene in the movie. You know, it's so tense. And, you know, just as a side note, Romero is known as many things, but people forget how good an editor he was you just mm. watch that scene and it's so brilliantly put together yeah he but edited the film himself of course didn't well, he? many people many he did, many yeah. people yeah. say he lost his edge when he let other people edit his movies because right, he, right. He, was, but, he was but, a director you know, editor mm. <laughs> but 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 just just to go back to that scene martin mm. you know invades this house in this horrible shocking you know appalling uh sequence um, and he goes in, and once again, he's looking for his virginal, um, you know, heaving-bosomed, nubile, willing lover. And what does he find? He finds this woman whose husband is away on business, who's got another man in her bed. That's yeah. very, um, that's very, you know, a cynical worldview. But it's also kind of funny. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. The, the, and, and the fact that it's... Yeah, as you, you're you're right that, that that's a very frightening sequence, but it's also mm. kind of farcical to a certain extent. Mm. You know, Martin, yeah, who's a, a physically unthreatening character, taking on this kind of beefy boyfriend uh, as yeah. you know, and, yeah. and that well, kind of cat and mouse around the house. Yeah, well, without going to into spoilers, but just in general, that sort of the naturalism is one of the things that gives it its gives it its you know is its air of horror is it feels like a home movie mm. sort of intentionally yeah. it's shot it's shot on it's the stock it's shot on is is reversal which is one reason why which is revert you know so it doesn't have a negative which is yeah. one reason why they don't have dave will know more about this than me but which is one reason why they don't have copies because they didn't have negatives they printed it but that's also how they shot the news in those days because it was right. quick and you didn't need to with the news, they didn't need to print it loads of times because it was literally just going out on TV. And they shot an actual $100,000 movie like that. Um, so, so I was reading this thing that, you know, Romero's there going, oh, man, we've got this two-and-a-half-hour version. Do you remember that? No one knows where it is. It's, you know, because they didn't have the negatives of it. So they cut it and edited it together on a one-off. Right. And that must yeah. be what... I mean, Dave, Dave, I mean, should we come on to... The fact we were going to do this movie when the Blu-ray came out, and then I spoke to Dave, and it was like, "Well, the Blu-ray's not coming out because they've just found the three-hour version." Which, which is is that is that kind of uh, 
Is that kind of confirmed now, Dave? You were saying off mic that there's stuff that's actually happened today. Yeah, well, the film was shot on 16 mil, blown up to 35. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, you know, just as a little bit of backstory, Romero had, was practically bankrupt uh, at the time and had been shooting all these sports commercials or these promotional films, including... Uh, unpleasantly uh, a documentary on oj simpson in the early oh, 70s yeah. but <laughs> when he was making these films him and um his sound guy who was called michael gornick who became uh, the um director of photography and martin they were saving up these scraps of film to make their movie and uh, because it's quite expensive and um what happened was that um um, they made this, um, they shot Martin as a, you know, sources vary as a, either a two hour and 45 minute or three and a half hour movie. And they shot it in black and white. And Mar uh, Romero, you know, throughout his career has always, was always, you know, terribly unhappy that this long lost, ex extra long version of Martin, um, uh, either was stolen from his garage or, according to other stories, um, was destroyed in a flood in his basement. So the extra-long version of Martin was bizarrely, um, earlier this year, found, and this is a sort of holy grail for, you know, uh, horror fans, and it was found by a solicitor who apparently uh, was given these three canisters of film and he watched them and then he put them aside and totally forgot about them. So I think it was in January or maybe December last year, um, he uh, was on Facebook and he was on a, a, a Facebook Martin group, of which I'm a member. <laughs> so I, I found these and, um, you know, let's see what happens. Now, the copyright um, is owned by Richard Rubenstein, who was the film's producer, and bizarrely is the, um, uh, the, ch the, uh, the cheating housewives um, from the home invasion scene. It's her, he plays her husband in the blink and you'll miss it scene. Right. So he owns the copyright to these. But, you know, this actually happened this morning on uh, this Martin Facebook um, group that the lawyer who owns these has um, put them up for sale. And you can go onto his website and he says, you know, this is the version. I um, assert no copyright, you know, but, you know, if you want to buy it, serious inquiries only. And if nobody does buy it by April the 20th, I think he says he's going to put it up for auction. So, you know, this long heralded, long lost black and white version of Martin, which runs, you know, twice as long as the version we've all seen, is suddenly back out there. And it's going to be so interesting to see what happens. Although, you know, one thing I'm going to say is that I, of course, will, you know, fly to America on my own money to go and watch this. But I don't think it will improve on the Martin that we all know. No, I like the fact it was 90 minutes, not just because, as you'll know, as a film critic, you're always like, yes, short film. 
<laughs> you found just, you, Ian, you, Ian, you said you found it. You found it a bit plodding in parts. Well, not plodding, fair? but just, but just. Um, I did, I did, I did find it. It was. I mean, this is this is a whole other section. It was. Um, I, I liked it, but it, it made me realise how much I have. You know, sometimes I, you know, you we've we've been watching streaming, we've been watching TV, we've been watching. I just thought, how's Generation Marvel going to cope with this? And uh, I mean, you were you were you were saying you were saying off mic that it shocked you at the time because you were used to Hammer, yeah, uh, yeah. And, it, and it was like, oh my god, I haven't watched a movie like this in this register this slow, yeah. Um, oh no, I obviously, obviously, that not on me. I wasn't bored by it. I was just like, oh, it's taking me a while to get into a slow movie, like you know, yeah, yeah. But that's, got this that's sort the of yeah, that's the beauty of it. I don't think there was a single moment of the film that I would, you know, excise because even the oh, no, no. moments, you know, where Martin's like sitting in his bedroom playing with a um, a pop up um, a bird toy, or when he's like walking around, you know, this incredibly depressed, broken back steel town. Yeah, it all added up to the atmosphere. Oh no no no! I mean, I wasn't I wasn't criticizing it in the. I, I could see if somebody said, "Oh, I found that boring," I would go, "You probably weren't in the right mood for it." Um, like with a oh, lot yeah, of movies, because yeah, um, cause it, yeah it's, it's not. But, but, but no, it was, it, was, it was just more. It was just more getting getting back into watching a movie from that era of that type. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah but, yeah. but I did, you know, I did love it. But yeah, I mean, just it's, it's also. Um, it's it's. I mean. It didn't make me want to go to Pittsburgh. That's for sure. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm actually, yeah, I'm actually going to um, make. You're going to do a pilgrimage? <laughs> no, no, I, I've actually done a pilgrimage. Oh wow! Well, well, I'm when, I was, when I was 18, um, I went uh, on an exchange course to a university in America. Yeah, and I, I remember I was month. supposed to go. I had a girlfriend. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're like an idiot. Remember, yeah. So I went, no, I don't want to go and have a girlfriend. Idiot. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, maybe maybe you were right. But anyway, I, I I went a month beforehand and I got a Greyhound bus and I went all around America. I, you know, went, had my, you know, Lonely Planet guide and I went to Pittsburgh and I stayed in a hostel and I remember coming down to the front reception desk at the hostel and saying, where can I get a bus to Braddock? Which was where the film was made. And, you know, I still remember the, the woman at the desk saying, you came all the way from England to go to Braddock? <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> you True story. And I walked, yeah. I walked around Braddock looking for the house where it was made and I couldn't find it. I just remember it being full of pawn shops uh, porn pawn shops and you know just a kind of general you know, uh, you know depressed economic area. yeah well i mean i mean i don't know if they pit pittsburgh because um uh because of um uh, what's his name is it romero from that well wasn't no, he's, uh, from, he's from the bronx but tom tom right. savini is from is from pittsburgh i thought the night of the living dead was also pittsburgh am i wrong no, that's right. Yeah, that was in Pittsburgh. Yeah, yeah. So maybe the advertising company, or was it Image Ten that that Romero yeah. got together to make that movie? It was in that area. So yeah, yeah. But yeah, because because it, it's um it's a very 
it's 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 filmed at the time when the steel steel industry was obviously they've had all the 70s was a shit show across the world wasn't it but um with the oil crisis and everything um just imagine that um <laughs> and then um <laughs> um and but then in pittsburgh in particular there was the steel industry was going which is why they've actually got that social commentary with the savini character yeah. you know who's out of work yeah. and there's no jobs so that that kind of just adds a whole other air to it that sort of these short live if, if if martin is and we should say for the if we, we should say for the people who haven't seen it it never really tells you whether he's a vampire or not does it he's either exactly and, 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 or he's an 84 year old vampire but yeah but, but that, that's that never, the, never um, tells you either way and i think that's important because that ambiguity is what you know helps drive the film mm. you know romero was asked many times are martin's flashbacks um to this sort of early 20th century black and white mm. world are they real did they happen or is it his, his imagination and i think you know you just don't need to answer that you just forget no, it no. it's it's um, it's part of film's charm yeah but the th thing about it is is though that unlike other vampire movies he doesn't fly i mean let alone garlic and crosses and reflections yeah. not working he doesn't fly he doesn't do anything he doesn't run faster than other people so nothing happens in this film that isn't basically i mean it this isn't this is in a way not a spoiler because it's the opening scene is a horrible murder yeah um, on a train yeah. and and what really undercuts it is is the matter of fact way that his uncle picks him up and goes hmm and knows he doesn't necessarily know that there's a dead girl in the car in the train car but he, he just kind of knows who he is and goes, right, we're getting on another train. And it's just yeah. that sort of the banality of evil almost is, a, you know, it's the horrible, but, but basically, you know, he, he, he doesn't, he doesn't put the glamour on people. He doesn't, he doesn't float in the air. He literally injects people with a date rate drug and then cuts them with a razor blade. So he doesn't do anything, you know, so, you could quite easily go, he's just a fantasist who phone, he even phones into like a radio show, mm. which is what, yeah. which is what dodgy masturbatory, uh, you know, no marks do. <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. He's, just, he's just lying around, oh, phone in and pretend to be a vampire. It reminds me of American Psycho in that kind of fantasy, but he is actually doing some crimes, but his fantasy life is still not necessarily real. You know, just just to say you know about his radio phone-ins um the um uh, the dj bizarrely is michael gornick who's also the oh, right. director of photography of the film you know oh. you know factoid but <laughs> it's very interesting because um you know just going back into the film's religious beliefs and its mm. catholicism he is took you know, this is the only insight we have to Martin's inner life. And it's, you know, interesting that the radio DJ has, you know, because religion has collapsed within the society, um, mm. the radio DJ acts as the priest. Martin is mm. confessing to him, you know, and it's, again, it's another really interesting part of the film that, you know, the absurdity that a radio DJ is now, 
you know, a radio talk show rather is now your confessional booth. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because um yeah, yeah. No, 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 that's that's a brilliant point. I was also gonna say the fact that he then gets on and it's like this is going over really well. And that that so yeah. his audience has obviously got yeah, yeah. for the magic you know, but so it's I kind think... of the irony is there because he's he's basically going the magic isn't real. But the fact is yeah. if if even his version of vampirism is real, that means the planet is at least not as we not as you know, not as dull and nothingy as as it may appear well, may I, seem. I think when it's kind of yeah. It's kind of similar to the way Romero's Living Dead films, uh, you know, address zombies in that he strips them of the kind yeah. of folkloric qualities that the zombie or the undead previously had in literature, and he, and yeah. he doesn't replace that with anything. He just says, "I don't know why they're here. They just are." Uh, yeah. and, and if if Martin is yeah. a real vampire, we don't know why he's there. And interestingly, neither do yeah. the religious people, the fundamentalists who want to kill him. They obviously don't really know what he is. Um, and the film just mm. allows that ambiguity to, to remain open. Um, so I think we should move on to spoilers now. But is there anything either of you would like you to say before we do that? Yeah, just before we do, I want to go back to Ian's point, you know, which again is another really interesting part in the film where Martin is, you know, on the um, phone to the DJ. And as Ian says, you know, um, they go to an ad break and the DJ says, hey, this is going over really well. You know, we'd like to get you into the studio. You know, that's another thing that I find really interesting about the film is that the DJ is actually the vampire. He is, you know, sucking the blood of this person for, you know, rating. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's he's feeding on Martin and also on his listeners. He's there from six till six, which is basically vampire working hours. So, uh, so <laughs> yeah, brilliant. So brilliant. intentional. It's a, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a cracking film, and obviously, this is my first proper viewing of it. Um, but it's. Uh, you know, I kind of was aware watching it how many to go to go Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie. It's got so many layers, but um, <laughs> at least six. But uh, <laughs> I hope we don't sound like I hope we don't sound like that. Well, let's let's discuss that in, in full spoiler fashion. Then I think it's fair to say that it's a very thorough recommendation for all three of us to any listener who's not seen the movie before. David, obviously, I think it goes without saying that you definitely want as many people as possible to watch Martin. Um, I'd agree, actually. I think it's it's a film well worth discovering. I'd say make sure you're in the right mood would be my only caveat. Yeah, yes. don't watch it after it's, the club. It's, it's a certain type of slow... Well, it's not slow. Maybe slow is not quite the right word. It's quite slow. It's, it, it's a slice... Of, well, I, I think if you go into it... Yeah expecting i think you need to familiarize yourself a little bit with what a slice of life kind of 70s movie was um because yeah. uh, that's more of what the, the the um aesthetic of martin is than say the the, um, the modern horror film no you know you know chaps i i would call it a slice of life and i wouldn't call it um any of those things i would call it a a, a work of realism you know 
Okay. I'm just going to go back um, a little bit. I remember this film was first shown in Britain. It was on Channel 4, and it was in December 1986. And I distinctly remember my sister recording it on our Betamax video thinking it was going to be another, you know, very pleasant home counties horror where Peter Cushing, you know, won at the end and uh, all would be well. And um, she recorded it to watch it with my mother. And <laughs> I actually dug out the newspaper report. We used to get the Daily Mail, you know, God help us, um, back in the day. And I dug out a copy of the Daily Mail from that day in December '86. And we were in the middle of the video, Nasty Panic, or we were just coming out of it. And there was an article in that day's paper saying, you know, um, you know, Parliament has moved this, blah, blah, blah. And then there was a bit at the bottom saying, actually, our schedules this evening uh, seem reasonably free of um, obscenity, which was ironic because Martin was, you know, seized by the um, obscene publications squad or whoever they were and was oh. never prosecuted um and the next day i remember my mother and my sister sitting down to watch this film and i remember walking in trying to you know trying to see what all it was what was going on and every time i did of course they turned it off and i had to go out anyway they started watching this <laughs> film and after 10 minutes after the you know train attack scene they both turned it off and walked out and never wanted to see it again. And, <laughs> you know, we were talking about realism and, um, you know, cinema verite or whatever, you know, you want to call it. But watching this film, as I did the, the next year, as a middle-class kid living in the home counties, was profoundly shocking because... You have to remember, as a child growing up in the 80s, America was all about, you know, Dallas. Everyone lived in, you know, Southport Ranch. They had huge cars, they ate cheeseburgers, they dated cheerleaders or jocks. And watching this film then and seeing, you know, the, the dark underbelly of the American dream was profoundly shocking. It was like a punch in the guts. Hmm. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, and yeah, yeah. yeah I, I think yeah, maybe yeah, no. we're still, a little still, more... In a way, that's the reaction I've had, getting used to flashy movies. And uh, mm. it still had that same reaction on me in 2022 yeah. because it's 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 a grimy, real, real you know, it's, it's, it's shot almost like, not quite like a documentary, but... It's not. It's not a flashy movie at all. You used so much of its power. Um, Ian, you used the word naturalism, mm. and I think it's worth saying that I think it's a it's a beautifully acted movie that doesn't seem like it's acted. Mm. Um, you know, and and in a way, mm -hmm. the aesthetic of it. Um, I mean, I use the term slice of life. Uh, it, it's. I really appreciate that perspective you gave us there, David, because um, to me, I kind of associated it more with the, the kind of British gritty realism that was happening 
at the time. I mean, you know, yeah. this was the time when Ken Loach was in Yeah, it's, a, it's almost a kitchen sink mm. horror, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and uh, so in a way, I didn't find it shocking in, in the same way, but I, I appreciated those qualities. But yes, of, of course, it is a kind of million miles away from the mainstream Hollywood TV product, especially yeah. of the 80s. And it is a million miles away from, from the stuff you, we see now. Um, but I do think that, you know, everybody in it seems like a real person. Nobody seems like they're on camera. Nobody's playing to the camera. Yeah. Um, it, no, and, no. and the tragedy is so... Um, both the joys and the tragedy in the story are so uh, matter-of-factly conveyed. You know, like the, the kind of sweet, almost sweet non-love story between Martin and Abby that happens, you know, um, when, when they sleep together. Abby? There's just a... It is Abby, isn't oh, it? Mrs. Santini, you mean? Yes. Yeah. Is she not called Abby? Oh, yeah. no. no uh, yeah. I'm sorry. You, yeah, yeah, she probably yeah. is. I apologise. No, she, uh, yeah. I, well, Martin yeah. calls her Abby, but um, yeah, of course. Sorry. The board housewife. Board housewife <laughs> yes. number one. Um, <laughs> and they're about uh, probably board yeah. housewife number, number five. You know, there's so many of them. But you know, Dan. Well, just um, if I if uh, if I can interject, you know, you were talking about uh, Hollywood, and that goes back to, you know, um, this weird strain of films that were made in the seventies. You know, and I will include amongst them, you know, Wes Craven, The Last House on the Left, Toby Hooper, yeah. Texas Chainsaw, and also, you know. Slightly from left field, this film called uh, Death Dream, um, also known as Dead of Night. Oh yes, you know it, Bob Clark. Bob yes, Clark. I, haven't, I haven't seen it yet, but um, right. I, I have it recorded, and I'm looking forward to oh, seeing it's, that. It, it's great. That kind of it's a post-Vietnam zombie film, essentially. Yeah, isn't exactly, it? and very yeah. early, you know, anti-Vietnam movie. But mm. you know, I think the central point, you know. Um, um, that I would make about Martin and why it is so um, interesting and so powerful is that it was made by people, you know, Wes Craven, Last House on the Left, Chainsaw, blah, blah, blah. They're made by people who didn't quite know what they were doing. Romero certainly was halfway on his way to learning his craft. If these films had been made by the Hollywood studio system, you know, and they'd had mm. big budgets and they'd had a, an all-star cast, they wouldn't have been anything like as good as they are. And mm. I've always, you know, I've been thinking about this, you know, quite a lot about this, these weird, you know, this weird strand of strange Hollywood movies, um, sorry, not Hollywood movies, this weird strain strain of midnight movies and why they are successful. And I think it's because the directors had a happy accident. Mm -hmm. Everything came together. And, um, you know, you know, just thinking about it a bit more is that their moral compass was just slightly off. You look at uh, right. the movies and you think, well, you know what? 
I really like this movie. It's really interesting. But you know what? I would not want this director or this writer to babysit my kids. There's something... <laughs> There's something just not right here. And that's what makes these movies such interesting cultural artefacts. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, it's a real shame Stella and Kirsty aren't here because just, well, apart from it's a shame anyway, but just because there was something, there is something very of its time in the voyeurism, the, you know, he is he is like looking at their breasts and we're seeing the breasts yeah and mm -hmm. it's it's horrible i know and, and you wouldn't and you wouldn't and you wouldn't you wouldn't set out to do that no and that you know just that that goes back to what i was saying about the last house on the left there's a terrifically horrible scene of sexual violence that's going on and the camera oh. is adopting this pov as we call it point of view and you're oh. watching the action happening and you've got some leaves of some trees in front of you. So the camera isn't just watching it. It's almost like you're a peeping Tom uh, observing what's yeah. going on. And, you know, as you were saying, Ian, you know, very interestingly, you know, the fact that you want to take a shower after watching some of these films is, mm. you know, is really prescient, I think. Yeah, well, deep, I mean, it's, it's a deep, it's, it's a, it's it's I mean in, in a brilliant way, but it's a deeply unsexy movie. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's it's the opposite. It's 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 such a grim. It's an in. I don't know. He'd be an incel now, wouldn't he? He's, he's yeah, a grim. Yeah. He's a grim little. Absolutely. He's a grim little virgin. I think the important is thing is. is it's an intentionally <laughs> unsexy movie. I think. Yes. I mean, it's, I maybe yeah. I'm in, misinterpreting, but I don't th think that you know in the scenes where Martin. Uh, strips his victims naked yes we see the breasts but they're not photographed in in an attractive kind of glamorous way right. it's all very hot i mean it reminded me of the um uh, the way that hitchcock shoots the rape and murder scenes in frenzy you know which mm. which um which has been uh criticized uh, at the time um, uh, and has been interpreted in various ways, but I kind of always thought that was him trying, maybe unsuccessfully, to not be the purveyor of kind of glamorous, stylish mm -hmm. stuff. And 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 I mean, you compare that with the uh, the kind of rape stuff in the Clockwork Orange, which is oh, yeah. massively the other way, because that's that film's really obviously it's intentionally stylized, and everything in it is. Um, visually kind of baroque so you know yeah. it's not necessarily unjustified in there but that you know this movie is and also uh, i think that the, the the black and white kind of flashbacks fantasies whatever you want to call them where we we kind of see martin which is either martin's memories or his kind of imagination mm. of what he's doing that those sequences show that the the filmmaker is able to create that stylized kind of soft focus um, effect if he wanted to. Yeah. And then the rest of the film doesn't do it. And I think there's a very clear point yeah. being made there. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's, there is that sort of snuff movie feel to it, which is just kind of, which is where I guess why the video nasty thing, if you went out looking for things to be, you know, offended to be offended by, by God, it's got it's they're so artless and they're just grim. Someone just pointed some mm. 
they've just pointed cameras at real naked people and it's yeah. horrible. It's like homemade porn. Yeah. Um, but obviously, if you don't want to, but obviously, there is a, there is much more going on than those sensors, sensorial types would have uh, would would be would be willing to see. But um, but it, it is that sort of um, you know, I guess it's Martin. It's it's not really even a male gaze. It's Martin's gaze. Which is why it's so horrible. It's his. It's his specific way of seeing the world. Which is yeah, but when he talks but, about this, you know, I'd never want to do the sexy stuff. <laughs> and it's like it's, it's almost the most horrific part of the film is when he's talking about sexy stuff. Oh dear! Oh, it's brilliant, but it's it's really unsettling. You know what? You know, I'm going to really disagree with you here. Um, okay, you know we watch the film. In the first five minutes, we have this, you know, not particularly attractive looking man stalking a woman on a train, looking at her. Then he breaks into the train and, um, you know, uh, rapes and murders her. You know, mm-hmm. you know, an absolutely um, unconscionable act and a character we cannot stand, you know, and we expect mm. to spend the next 90 minutes watching this evil person finally getting their comeuppance mm. what happens and again you know i i talk about all the different things that are going on in the film by the end of the film um we um there was a, a guy who wrote a book on martin um, i can't remember his name but he put it really well by the end of the film we actually sympathize with him and we don't like him but we look on him as um a person with an addiction um you know like a almost like a family member who has been sucked into this madness that he can't control we Mm. want we want them to get better but we know that they can't and you know but Martin's bloodlust, um, you know, as I think the posters called it, um, isn't, you know, is, is kind of universal in, you know, obviously not all of us go around drinking blood, but, it, you know, I almost look at him as like this um, kind of helpless alcoholic who can't stop drinking, even though everyone around him knows mm. that he should um, and we mm. sympathise with him, but we just kind of, we almost at the end of the film, we just kind of give up on him. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, um, I did find, I used the word sweet earlier, and I did find a lot of it kind of strangely sweet. Well, if you get past, um, the you know, the murders, um, which I, I think it's fairly clear that he's he's committing them because he... He feels he has to, or he can, you know, he can't not do that, whether he's a real vampire or it's a mental illness. Um, mm. And and then ultimately, um, I mean, we're in spoilers, so we can say this. You know, the end of the movie when he's he's finally dispatched is is a horrible murder in itself, it photographed mm. with yeah. the same kind of uh, hideous dispatching yeah. uh, as the others. But also, well, in a way, it's in a way, it's the the most horrible murder of the film. You see, it's more horrible than any murders that he commits. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and, and also the, I'd, I'd, the fact, yeah. I think it's just tragic as well, that the fact is that the thing that gets, uh, you know, the, the act that provokes 
Cuda to actually kill Martin is somebody dies who Martin didn't kill. Of course, of you course. Know, obviously, Cuda blames it on him. And that's really interesting, Dan. You know, another of the themes that I think runs through the film is Martin as a, as you know, perhaps a teenager or perhaps as an ancient vampire is knows throughout the film and says throughout it that he knows that if he does the sexy stuff, as he calls it, you know, without the blood, it is going to cause his destruction. And, mm. you know, we can talk about this as a vampire film. We can talk about it as um, an outsider movie. We can talk about it as in many ways, but it's also about, um, you know, maybe a teenage fear or just a general fear of commitment of sexual intimacy and the you know what that will involve and you know martin you know of course has you know his predilections and his neuroses but you know if you wind them back a bit i don't think he's that different from you know a lot of um uh people yeah well i mean he's He's, he's, um, I mean, he is a typical teenage boy, <laughs> but, um, yeah, yeah, well, but the fact is if, because it's such a, because it's such a real feeling film. If the police ever got involved in this film, then Martin, you know, the, yeah, his uncle, his, you know, um, his uncle would be put in prison for killing him. And also they'd go, if you knew he'd done this, why? Were you dealing with it with, you know, why were you letting him work in your shop? Why were you, why were you trying to cure him and exercise well, him? The, I think that and why, the, why didn't you hand him over to the authorities and, and, and get treated? That's the East European way. We deal with it in our family. Yeah, it's a, it's a family shame thing. Yeah, so that's, so, so, so in a way, he's, you could sort of, you could read, you could, one reading of it could be that he's an ill child. His illness has been, Probably caused or encouraged by the culture he's been brought yeah, up in. Absolutely, and they're, I think. Or, or if he, or if he is a real vampire, they're also guilty of not acting and letting him rampage around the world for eighty years. Yeah. So <laughs> instead, instead of instead of dealing with him because of their superstition, yeah, so it's yeah. you know it's yeah. it's the old it's the old Romero thing of we are the monsters. The worst people in his films aren't the zombies. Yeah. And in this case, it's not Martin the vampire. It's it's his it's uncle, society. Who exactly. ultimate, who's ultimately a psycho who who thinks of himself as a good man. Yeah, yeah. I'd also he add to that. Fix a stake for a seventeen-year-old's heart at the end in the most graphic. Yeah, I, I always it, it's it's strange, but because it was so long since I've seen the film, I thought I remembered that Martin did actually kill Cuda in the end. Uh, but then, no, it's, it's the opposite. And that's mm. such a, a brute. I had to rewind that scene and watch it again. I know. It's um, a, yeah, yeah. He's just, it's a moment, isn't sudden, it? Yeah, he's just, you know, Martin just wakes up, Kuda's over his bed with the with the stake, and bang, he's gone. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I'd add to that was, as well, just the fact that... Um, it's not just the religious fundamentalist kind of ho horrible people in the movie, but everybody's disappointing in it. Um, you know, there's the, uh, you know, from um, uh, Abby who 
who you know becomes uh, Martin's lover and, and is a, a center of kind of a site of possible hope or, or some kind of sense of light. But then she uh, gives into her own darkness, but by committing suicide, and he's completely unaware of that. You know, and so he just walks in and finds her kind of dead in that very matter of fact way. Yeah. Then there's mm-hmm. um, uh, what's Kuda's niece called? Christina. Um, yeah, and mm-hmm. you know she is really nice to Martin, or at least you know compared to, to to Kuda. But when she leaves the film, she promises she'll write to Martin, but then doesn't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know she's also just less than her word, and 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 the whole world is kind of disappointing. And you realise that at the end of the day, at least Martin is a horrible murderer, but he. He's at least fairly honest about what he is to himself, you know, and he keeps himself to himself. He doesn't make promises to people that he's not going to keep. Um, and when he goes on that radio show, he's fairly open and talking about his approach mm. to life. And he's yep. sort of doing his best with what he's got, which he's obviously got a horrible lot in life. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's, yeah. it's very interesting you're talking about Christine. You look at the film and, um, you know, just going back to what I was saying about this town of Braddock having no hope. It's very, very interesting that um, um, you watch the film and there are no children in it. There are children in it in one scene where Martin is, you know, staking out the the home invasion scene and he buys an ice cream sandwich from an ice cream van and there are children (laughs) in that one scene otherwise there are no children in in the entire movie which reinforces Uh. the fact that you know this is a dying town you know children you know Uh. obviously symbolize hope regrowth and um you know the future there are no children yeah and yeah, and the and the, the the ladies in the shop, you know, are all very much. Well, when did anyone young last come into this? Exactly. Town? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And, and and there's an irony there, and like, well, actually, he's eighty four years old. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or is he seventeen? And, and and so yeah, so you know, just just going into the kind of the, the lack of hope and the, you know, the 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 moral g- degeneracy of the town is that there are no. Um, hopeful or you know positive relationships in it we've got uh, Tatakuda who's single we don't know what happened to his wife we've got Christina um, who's going out with Arthur played by Tom Savini of course who who uh-huh. is cheating on her we've got the housewife um, in the home attack scene who's got a, a, a lover in her bed when her husband's away. And then we've got Martin's lover um, who is married and is depressed and is, has taken on a young lover. You know, it's a, a very cynical, but it's a very um, uh, depressing look at, you know, the flip side of the American dream. Yeah, mm-hmm. and a priest who doesn't uh, be- really seem to believe what he preaches. Ex- exactly, um, and I'm, I'm, it's very interesting, you know, we're talking, you know, the state of the church in this film. We've got, you know, uh, Father Howard, played by um, Romero, who obviously doesn't believe. 
he holds a service in the film um in a it's a lovely scene that oh it's it's lovely yes i i I totally agree with you but the scene is held the church is um, burned down and they're holding in some sort of community hall you know the church is gone uh, you know um uh, jobs have gone um all the old um you know uh, things that we hold true have all disappeared and this is a town without hope and the people have degenerated because of it and martin uh, comes into the scene and becomes a you know as i said before a, a kind of pariah because people are so unhappy and so upset they need to find something to focus their um ennui towards mm-hmm. yeah your favorite word on um it was taught to me by yeah, yeah. but um that probably was yeah you're, you're always getting oh we probably it's the most pretentious word i've ever said but um but yeah but yeah but also also the people with the tortures in the flashbacks are prefigured by by the judgmental old ladies in the shop of course, so of course. you know and so so they're the you know first thing they say is well first thing as a group you know they come out and and um you know and she says i can't you can't believe you've got a young man living under the same roof so they've got their religious well, judgment, well, judgmental think, stuff. and that's very interesting Straight that, that's very interesting because there's a lot of prefiguring in the film you know um mm. martin at the start he's walking his way through this railway carriage and a hand falls out of um a curtain and you know the hand looks just like you know the uh, the typical vampire's claw reaching out of the coffin mm-hmm. And, mm. you know, just a few minutes later, you've got Martin standing, you know, 20 yards apart from Tatakuda. And you've got these this sort of steam coming from the the, uh, the pipes on the railway station. And that's used later, you know, on his flashbacks of this mist coming out, you know. So, yeah. you know, mm. there's, there's so much going on. Mm. I, yeah. I think the yeah. use of those scenes are really interesting because you know it, um, right from the start when uh, Martin invades the train carriage and, and it cuts to the black and white image of the, of the woman in yeah, yeah. kind of welcoming him in and you think mm. ah this is you know how he imagines his own uh, scenario that he's in but then later in the film when you see more of those kind of sequences uh you think oh wait a minute are these his real history are we, are we looking at his memories here and then oh it's very much his sort of mina harker he's red dracula yeah <laughs> kind of uh, uh, yeah yeah kind of uh, just because she seems he's the the dead lover seems a lot more into it and, than the uh than the current than the current current his current victim right well <laughs> indeed um <laughs> Uh, but you know, and, and the film never defines explicitly what where the divide is. Um, you know, the the true those flashbacks are somewhere between fantasy and history, and we we don't know. And and that's part of the ambiguity of the film that works really well. It's very interesting <laughs> during that um, train scene at the start. You know, just before he breaks into the room with his skeleton key he has this vision as you say um of this you know nubile willing you know large-chested um woman 
who is going to invite him in and submit to his vampiric, you know, Christopher Lee-like charms. And what happens? He goes into the room, he hides behind the door, and the woman comes out of the toilet. There's a flush of a toilet. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. She's covered in moisturiser, you know, she, so she's yeah, not yeah. looking her, her best, may I say. And she's below, <laughs> and she's, and interesting, she's blowing her nose, you know. She's, yeah. you know, yeah. all the sort of frailties of um, uh, human nature are animalistic um, need. Yeah. You know, contrast with this beautiful woman that he imagines. And, you know, that kind of says so much because the film is, you know, such contrast between our expectations of Hammer Horror and, you know, movies, mm. filmed, you know, in Buckinghamshire, you know, where the Transylvania Castle is, you know, outside Aylesbury. And you know, <laughs> we have, but we have this, you know, proper human thing. And Martin, mm. you know, is confronted with this all the time, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's um, I I really what what did you think about the whole scene where he's actually dressed up as a sort of Dracula type? So I just love the bit where he spits the fangs. Yeah, out yeah, yeah. And he's just like, it's just a costume. Yeah. And I I almost think that could be the theme of the whole movie. Could be everyone's yeah. just wearing that's, a costume. Yeah, that's mm. everyone's right. everyone's just sadly going through the motions in this movie. Yeah, it's such a depressing film, like a, a work of genius, but it's um, but it's a depressing movie. Yeah, it's not depressing; it's sad. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, S slash depressing if you're not a very good. Mood. I think, <laughs> well, I, I think if I'd found it hugely depressing, I mean, I could see what you're saying, Ian, but also, but I do feel yeah. like the film has something about it that will draw me back to it. Um, whereas if I was just depressed by it, I, I'd, mean, I'd perhaps be a bit more repelled. Yeah, no, no. Well, what stops it being depressing is its artistry, but it's generally a very bleak, pessimistic yeah, outlook. Absolutely. Um, no, um, I don't know. I don't know if I'd agree. I, I think it's cynical. But I, I mean, think, I mean, I think yeah. He puts, no, no. I'm, the, I think the, the, the nut job that kills him puts some seeds on his on his grave and he buries him in his garden. I think it's. I mean, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's cynical. <laughs> But interestingly, that scene where he plants the seeds, I don't think he is planting seeds. According to East European uh, vampiric law, you uh, sprinkle salt over the grave to make sure yeah. they won't rise again. Right. Yeah, I'm, pre I'm pretty sure. Um, so I, only, I only watched it yesterday. I'm pretty sure they look like seeds to me. Well, but, um, maybe it was symbolic. So, gentlemen, you know, we're coming up to the end of our time. So um, I just wondered mm -hmm. if we'd each want to say something, if there's anything each of us would like to say about the movie that we haven't yet. We haven't mentioned all the car crushing. There's a lot of car wrecking yards, yeah, yeah. which I guess just add to the general, Jesus, there's a lot of consumer goods to get rid no, of. No, I, before I, this I, 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 just, saw, I just saw it as a malaise, you know. Yeah. Um, mm. What would I it's well, they also look a lot like coffins. I mean, they do call them people inching along in their coffins, don't they? Right. Uh, it's kind of a very seventies. But they, when they when they, when you have that pack of when you have that you know when you have that box that car that's been crushed and it pops out like a box, it is sort of coffin shaped. As yeah. Well. Yeah. So I wonder. It's, it's, I wondered how much we could. Uh, 
For... It's a great symbol for lack of hope, isn't it? And for the end of things, yeah. is, is, is those endless kind of scrapyard piles of, of vehicles. Um, I just, yeah. I wanted to add myself, um, I, I'm obviously I'm very interested to see the, the full, um, you know, the two and a half hour, four hour, whichever version yeah, it is cut of the film. Although, um, well, yeah, um, although, and I've heard that um, it is black and white, which is how Romero hoped that the film would be presented. Uh, and in a way, though, I feel like a little bit like you said, David, I think maybe the perfect version of the film is the version we've got. And I think it's really uh, meaningful and telling the way that we've got black and white sequences in the film and colour sequences um, and, and they depict different levels of reality. I think if the whole film is black and white, you might lose that. And then there's a sense of that in the trailer, actually. The theatrical mm. trailer for the movie is all colour. Even the sequences that are black and white in the film, I think, are colour in the trailer. Mm. And I, uh, you know, I think it loses yeah. something. By... I, think, I, think, I think it gains a lot from... It gains a lot from its sort of the colour sequences, the lack of artistry mm. um, adds to the whole, yeah, we've, you know, that feeling you actually, there's a camera being pointed in the corner of somebody's room and this is real and there's no, you know, that sort of, you know, it's obviously there's a lot of art going onto it, but the, the fact that it comes across like a home movie yeah, in some sequences, that would be lost if we had the sort of black and white, all the way through. I mean, not ne necessarily, that, but I, I suspect it would be. But, 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 but it, it, would, it would add, it would add a layer of, it would add another layer of, of having it in colour in the, you know, in real world, in real life colours, as, mm. as you know, or, or in a not technicolour, but just literally like you see them in real life when you're on a dreary day in Pittsburgh. Um, that would be very different if it was in black and white all the way through. It would seem like someone had tried a bit too much. But like you were saying, Dave, you know, if this was a Hollywood movie, the happy accidents wouldn't be happening. Mm. Just filming it straight in colour because that's what real life's in. Real life's in colour, but not well lit. Color. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. And not in technicolour. And it's not, and real life isn't in nice looking black and white, deep focus black and white either. Mm. It's, you know, it's in. It looks quite a lot like the colour bits in Martin. Yeah, so, <laughs> I would say, David. You know, this is your movie. If I if I make all yeah. that, I think the well, last word know. should go to you. How, yeah, I, I'm sure you could you could uh, speak about this for hours on end. Um, and well, do I like really see that well. boring? <laughs> uh, and I'd like to hear you speak for us on end on on Martin, but you know you do have the post of this in your house, don't you? I do, I, I do, I remember. do. I, I actually do. I have the soundtrack, and I have the uh, the uh, preset VHS, and uh, I even have the laser disc. And oh, um, as your viewers won't see, I'm drinking out of a uh, a Martin uh, uh, mug, uh, so. But yes, anyway, uh, moving on from that, um, you know, I, I think um, might be repeating myself. Um, I think, you know, we, we've, you know, become interested in 70s horror films and we watch them and we go through, you know, personally, I've 
always been interested in this, you know, particular area of cinema. And I've watched, you know, probably, you know, a hundred of these films and most of them are absolute rubbish. And this is the one film that, you know, really stands out, you know, is a better um, class of movie. It demystifies um, vampirism and it, you know, puts forward a, a very interesting um, flip side of um, the American dream. And, um, you know, and, and it's, it's, a, it's a movie, you know, that has all its composite parts working together. It's got John Amplis um, as the principal actor who gives a performance which, you know, I haven't seen better of, you know, um, in many years. It's got the score, which is, you know, both haunting and very sad and um, exquisitely beautiful. It's got the um, editing, you know, Romero, I think, uh, was a much better editor than he's been given credit for. It's got a plot that, you know, really, you know, roars along. And also, I think uh, the film um, has, you know, the biggest character in the film is the environment. The fact that uh, we're living or we're watching a film um, in a depressed steel town that informs everything around it and creates this very strange maudlin mood that we aren't used to seeing. And it's one of those very rare films where everything comes together absolutely correctly. Absolutely. That's beautifully said. Brilliant. And I, Brilliant. I agree thoroughly. I think you, you've really sold the movie. And if anybody has yeah. listened to the spoiler section who hasn't seen the movie, well, um, they'll want to watch it now. They'll wish they had. So I, I think... <laughs> I don't think... I don't, in a way, it's not the sort of film that would be spoiled by spoilers no, anyway. that's true. Because it, it's, it's an experience. Yeah, it's, but, uh, it's not plot... It's not plot based, and I'm really glad you mentioned yeah. John Amplos because I can't, can't believe we hadn't said his name before, and he really is terrific. Yeah, yeah. As Martin, and also I was well. One one thing we've completely forgot to mention: you've interviewed John Amplos, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah, Dave, yeah. I completely forgot. I, I talked about it on email earlier. Um, so what, what what was he like? He was lovely. Okay, I mean, um, you know, uh, Dan, you know, just. As way of background, I was trying to write a book about Martin, and okay, it, you know what? I I had an agent at the time, believe it or not, and um, he was um, he was kind of into the idea, but he was like, you know, obviously you've got to like turn it into something relevant to these days. So I I was trying to write a book about Martin and tie it into a a story about growing up in um, middle-class um, Bedfordshire, strangely. So me, you know, anyway, mm. so I interviewed, um, I phoned up John. Um, he's on Facebook and he's very uh, friendly and, you know, he'll certainly, um, you know, uh, befriend you. And, uh, you know, he told me about, um, you know, making the film and, um, you know, it was very interesting, you know, you know, as I've said before, you know, I think his performance is amazing. Yeah. Uh, so, my friends, this has been wonderful. Um, 
we've been talking about Martin. We could go on. Um, but listener, please go and, and seek out the movie if you haven't already. Um, we're coming to the end of the podcast. Often at the end of our podcasts, we um, we uh, pick out items of recommendations that we have from current horror. Um and we don't know, we, we weren't going to do that this week, but I did notice the other day as we're on a vampire theme, I was exploring uh, all four. I, I love free streaming services, and on all four, there's a mountain of archive drama, which I was delighted to discover, one of which is the 1998 uh, Channel 4 vampire drama series, Ultraviolet. It's uh, oh, wow. it's all there to watch. That's one of my favourite vampire texts, which I haven't seen. Is Jesse Birdsall in that, or have I gone mad? Jesse Birdsall was in Bugs, but it's Bugs. That's same, what I'm thinking of. It's so, Jack Davenport is in. Yes, that's right. Right. Yes, and they've got similar faces and hair. Yes, <laughs> and 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 Stephen Moyer, pre True Blood, you know that's his previous brush with vampirism, as oh, yeah, ultraviolet. So. Yeah, um, I'd like to give that another go because I remember it was back in the days before you could watch stuff and you had to be in the house to watch it. So, yeah, that whole era of TV I didn't get to watch because it was like, well, I can't watch a serial. <laughs> I don't know where I'm going to be one week to the next. Yeah. So, uh, well, the the um, times that we got <laughs> through as viewers. But uh, yeah, it's there on all four, and I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, mm-hmm. Ian, thank you so much, as always, for your co-hosting. Um, yeah, and, uh, and it's been great catching up with me on Mucka Dave. Yes. And uh, we should get you back on, Dave. It's been uh, talking talking movies with you. It's been brilliant. Yeah, David, thank you so much. It's been fascinating, and it's been really insightful on the movie, actually. So, Well, thank, thank you. you. Yeah, mm. I'm, 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 I've been enjoying, uh, you know, been enjoying the experience. Oh, brilliant. That's what we like to hear. Well, you know. All right, listeners, we'll be back next month, maybe a little bit in between with a few um, surprise goodies as well. In the meantime, thanks for listening and take care. See you soon. You have been listening to And Now the Podcast Starts. Produced and released by Ambidextrous Solutions Limited. Presented by... Ian Winterton and T.D. Velasquez with special guest David Edwards. Special thanks to Greg Hume for our original theme music and to Brian Gorman for our original artwork. All dialogue and music clips from films, TV shows and trailers are used for the purposes of criticism in the spirit of fair dealing as defined in UK law and fair use as defined in US law. No copyright infringement is intended. Please visit our home on the web, www.andnowpodcast.com, for more content and contact details. Or visit our Facebook pages, at AndNowPod or at LeeCushingPod. Follow us on Twitter, at AndNowPodcast or at LeeCushingPodcast. If you'd like to donate to us, please visit patreon.com forward slash and now podcast and now the podcast stops